Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hi, this is Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you leader to leader about something important. As leaders, especially at times of rapid change and uncertainty, it's easy to live and act from a place of fear. If we're not careful, that fear can paralyze us and keep us from effectively leading at work, at home, and in every relationship. But that doesn't have to be the case. My friend Ben Straub, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions, a growth architecture firm that helps leaders and organizations accelerate revenue and maximize impact through data-driven strategies, has just released a great new resource for leaders. It's called Eight Things Leaders Say When They Fear Change and How to Confront Those Fears. This five-page resource gives you eight of the most frequent responses we as leaders have when we experience fear and the specific steps and language that you can use to move beyond fear to action. Click the link in the episode show notes to get this resource today. You'll be a better leader tomorrow because of it. Hey everyone, this is Andrew Olson here with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm here today with Bobby Lewis and Bobby has spent the last 25 or so years building and leading effective businesses, technology systems, services, and creative teams across the for-profit sector, including large and small companies and franchise businesses. But since 2017, he's been serving as Executive Vice President of Operations at Love Worth Finding Ministries. Bobby, welcome to the show today, man. Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be here. Hey, man, it's good to have you here. I'm excited to talk with you about, broadly, some leadership topics. Before I do that, give us just a few minutes of who you are and who Love Worth Finding is. I'd be glad to do that. I'm a native Memphian. I actually grew up uh, at Bellevue Baptist Church where our pastor, Adrian Rogers, was the senior pastor and preacher at that church for about 30 years. During his ministry there, he started a multimedia uh, ministry in order to, it's, I mean, way back, it kind of started like with cassette tapes and, and, uh, and things like that. But it was a way for his messages to be distributed outside the walls of the church. And over time, as God's favor came on the ministry, uh, and as uh, the vision uh, increased, it actually ended up where we are today being a omni-channel multimedia distribution point for the preaching of God's word. We have radio, television broadcast, we've got live stream. Uh, we've got our website that has uh, a resource library of several thousand uh, sermons. We publish uh, articles, Bible studies, daily devotions and all uh, like that. And we're pleased and excited to be doing that. That's awesome, man. Thanks for giving us that overview there. So let's jump into this. I, I'm curious to get your take and, and get you to just first share with us a little bit about your own leadership journey. I'm particularly interested in learning sort of how and when did you realize that you wanted to be in a leadership role, or maybe you just realized one day that you were in a leadership role. Talk, talk about how that evolution came about. Yeah, that, and that in fact, that's one of my most uh, one of my most favorite stories in, in in my life, because the chairman of Loveworth Findings Board was a guy who was very instrumental and influential in helping me learn what I think was one of the greatest leadership lessons uh, that I've had in my life. I, as you said just a minute ago, I found myself really more in a leadership situation. I never aspired to be a leader, but as I kept, I'm a learner, I'm a researcher, I'm a voracious reader. As I kept learning about things, I really discovered that my value to different organizations would increase 
rather than being, you know, somebody who was isolated or kind of an expert on one thing, I became, my dad calls it a jack of all trades and a master of none uh, kind of a deal. But sometimes, sometimes that works. But as I found myself in a little bit of a leadership uh, situation, I was, for the first time in my professional career, I was managing a team of about eight people. And I am wired to be highly perfectionistic. I'm wired to be to want to get things done quickly, to get things done right, get things done the way that I see that they ought to be done. And I really came to a point in my ministry, this was, this was actually while I was at Bellevue, I came to a point in my ministry where I was about ready to crash. I threw out my hands, I threw up my hands. I went to our executive pastor, uh, who was my boss at the time, and said, I'm done, I'm leaving tonight, and I'm not coming back. I can't do this, I'm an ultimate failure. And he said, uh, go home, spend two days, let's have breakfast Friday morning. And he named a breakfast place for us to go. And so I went home, I slept a lot, I was just tired. I was actually relieved to no longer have any responsibility for myself or anybody else. I went to breakfast with him. I thought it'd be about 30 or 45 minutes, about four hours. And he kept talking to me and he said, Bobby, he said, in order for you to grow in your leadership, capacity. And then ultimately, in order to be more valuable and more effective to any organization, you have to learn how to work through people. He said, if you could even work 20 hours a day, seven days a week with 100% perfection, there's still an upper limit on what you can do yourself and what you can be involved in. And he said, quite frankly, two people that could do 80% of what you do would do one and a half times more work <laughs> than, than you would than you could do uh, by yourself. And he said, you have to come to a sense of reality about what really is important and what really is just OCD, you know, built into, into your personality. And he agreed to mentor me and to, uh, and to walk me through a journey. And I want to tell you, Andrew, I, I was, I don't mind telling you how old I am or what I'm 62 now. That happened when I was about, 28 or 29 years old. And I still remember it as the most liberating professional leadership moment of my life. That's awesome. And that's, I mean, that's gold right there. That, that idea of not thinking that you as a leader have to do it all on your own. I think, you know, I, I've struggled with that. I think so many people do. So I think that's a great perspective. I'm, well, he said, well, and this is, this is what's counterintuitive because he said, Bobby, you will know that you're being successful when you've worked yourself out of a job. If you're the only one who can do a particular task or a particular function and nobody else can do it, then you're stuck where you are. But if you mentor other people and bring them to the point where they can do the job at least as well as you do and maybe better because of their giftings and their skills, then that opens up the opportunity for God to move you uh, into other areas of service. So I got two follow-ups for you on that. The first one is related to what you just said. I think a lot of people are scared of the idea of working themselves out of a job, right? Because mm -hmm. the, the thought is, well, if I'm not useful anymore, then you know, I might just get laid off or I, I might get cut. Talk a little bit about you know, in, in your own progression, once you mentored and trained up those other leaders to take on what you had been doing, what kind of things did it allow you to do after that? <laughs> that, that is interesting. So I... When I went, I worked at, at Bellevue Church for about 15 years, and that's primarily going to be our conversation today, at least in my reference. I also worked uh, with Service Master. I also owned a couple of small businesses, but the principles uh, are all the same 
uh, to me. But specifically, when I went into the ministry and went to work at, uh, at Bellevue, one of the areas of responsibility I had was IT. That's actually my training. That's what my degree is in. And, and so that's kind of where my, my initial application was when I went, went to work in there in the church. As I found out how to work through business analysts and developers and operational you know, kinds of people and found myself having more and more time, my avocation and my passion is actually music. I, am, I love worship. Uh, and so all of a sudden I found myself with the opportunity to go and serve our worship pastor, our primary worship pastor there at the church, and ultimately ended up moving out of IT into the worship ministry, uh, where I was able to provide some administrative functions. You know, a lot of musicians are not administratively gifted, right? But I could provide administrative functions to the worship team, and there was about eight or ten that were on that team right there. As that grew, I moved into the communications area of the church, which had, had to do with the radio, the television ministry, had to do with uh, promotions and advertising and print and newsletters and things like that. As that grew in my skills around being able to communicate with people became a little bit more uh, mature, I was able to move in and take over the evangelism ministry of our church. And all of this was the building ground because you fast forward about 25 years later to the past two years when the opportunity for me to come and join Love Worth Finding as the executive vice president became apparent. When I looked at the scope of responsibility, it was all the things that I'd been freed up to do mm. back at Bellevue. Loveworth Finding has communications department. Loveworth Finding has an administration department. Loveworth Finding has a very aggressive vision for the use of technology in order to, uh, to, to present the gospel and to help people grow in their faith. Loveworth Finding has a broadcast uh, ministry, radio and television. And quite frankly, all those things I am able to bring to bear at Loveworth Finding because of a decision made about 30 years ago to let go and start changing the way that I operated within an organization. That's awesome. Okay. So the second follow-up that I had was you've mentioned twice so far in our conversation, the topic of mentoring. Yeah. I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that is not something that a lot of leaders sort of intentionally step into. Uh, it yeah. might be more happenstance, but talk to us a little bit about you know, how you navigated that mentoring relationship and what you found to be most valuable in it. That, that is a great question, and it's the biggest challenge in my life because you can probably tell by now I have a hard time letting go of things. Right? <laughs> but the number one thing that you've got to be able to do when you make a commitment to mentor others, you've got to go in to the relationship recognizing that your purpose and your intention is to get out of that work. You've got to be willing to let go of it. And I came across a little four-step mentoring process. Actually, it's John Maxwell. Uh, is the one that, uh, that socialized this or promoted this. Let me see if I can get it right. Uh, it says, I do, I do, you watch. You do, I watch, and then you do, mm. right? And so, and there's got to be definable points where that path, those milestones are achieved in a particular uh, mentoring relationship. So a lot of people think mentoring is bring in a new guy, spend a new, new young lady, a new guy, spend all day talking their head off, just brain dumping, right? Everything that you know into there and then walking away. But mentoring takes an investment by the mentor 
and an investment by the mentee and a recognition that we're going to walk through some period of time, whether it's a small task and it takes a week or whether it's a larger task and it takes three months or whether it's actually a full area of responsibility in a business or an operation. And it could take as long as a year to do that. But the, the two things I think for me that have been most successful in that are number one, a conscious decision to let go and an intentional process to mentor somebody. My next question for you is I, I am curious to know what you believe are the, the most important values that you demonstrate as a leader. Yeah, it's really, really messy, but I am, uh, I am a believer in collaboration that when you come to the table, and you have a decision, I want to hear from everybody. And again, that's contrary to my wiring, but my experience has taught me that this is the best way to get teams and to get buy-in. Number one, they need to be heard. They need to be in a safe environment. They need to be able to say something, even if that's something is, is stupid, but they need, uh, they need to be heard. And then secondly, I think rather than being arrogantly dictatorial and just saying it's, you know, it's, it's I think you lead from the power of relationships, not from the power of authority. Now you can lead from the power of authority. And every once in a while you have to say, I'm the seat at the table that is entrusted with this decision. And even though we can't come to an agreement, uh, I've got to make a decision and this is where we go. I think people are more willing to accept that if you didn't come in within the first minute and say, here's what we're doing. And here's, and this is what you're, what you have to do. I think people need to be, grown, they need to be uh, listened to, they need to be brought along, and to, the, to any degree possible, they need to be sold on any change or direction that you're trying to go. So that's just, that, that's not what I was 40 years ago, it's what I am today. And it's, and it's messy, because when people come to the table and everybody feels like they have an equal seat at the table, you don't want to do anything to make them feel any less than that. And so opinions get strong and, uh, and things like that. And what you actually do is you start learning the personalities of other people that are on your team and how to better relate to them over time. That's great. You know, it's, it's, it reminds me of the conversation we had, I don't know, it was a year, two years ago at, at the NRB conference when you were talking about, you know, all, all the different and various change management initiatives that, that were going on and that you had been working on and, right. and, and really about, you know, how, how you bring people along on a trip that they might not have planned to take otherwise, right? Right, and that's what we've been doing for about two and a half years. And it's yeah. been loads of fun. <laughs> so, so talk to me about this. I've done uh, my fair share of change management initiatives with teams in the past, and and I've got the bruises and you know broken bones to show for it. I want to know what your approach is to keeping a team motivated, focused and in alignment around major change initiatives? I think there's just, as I'm thinking through that question, there's probably three thoughts that come to mind for me. And I'm gonna start with the most negative of the three thoughts first. You need to know your team and you need to be, that they need to have enough confidence. You might not need to always have public conversations, but you need to be able to go down, close the door and say, hey, tell me what you're really thinking about this. Tell me what you feel about this. Tell me what you're fearful of. If we go this direction, what are we losing? Tell me where I might be blind and I don't really have a, a good idea. And, it, and again, it's all about nurturing and cementing the relationship with the people who could actually end up being your detractors. 
right? Or the boat anchors, the people that are dragging their feet. And you've got to recognize that. You can't ignore it. And you've got to go sit down, take the time, make the investment to have those conversations. You may not walk out agreeing, but you, everybody walks away understood. As you're working through change, I like to find quick wins. Left to my own devices, I want 110% effectiveness, 110% solution yesterday. But you've got to recognize that nobody ever gets to that that fast and to that level of effectiveness. And quite frankly, sometimes it's not good to get to that level of maturity real fast because there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of learning in the journey, right? So you can sit down. I, I told you my background was IT and there's kind of two different ways that large systems are developed in the IT world. One is called the waterfall method. That's the one where all the teams would come in, they would interview all the users, they'd create a 1500 page book, it would take them 18 months to do that. And then they would get everybody to sign off and then they'd go back and send it to the developers. The developers would take another 18 months to write the program and then by the time the program is delivered, we're three years past the day that the need was identified <laughs> and all of a sudden the brand new program and three years of investment is obsolete obsolete because the organization changed, the needs changed, the people changed, right? Yeah. And so the other way uh, that developers are starting to write, you know, IT systems today is called Agile. And what they do, they say, what is the single most important thing we need to do today? Let's go implement that and let's get it done in 30 days. And then you come back and say, now what's the single most important thing that we need to do today? Because in 30 days, it may have changed from what it was, but you're always working on the customer or the user's highest felt need when you're building in an, in an agile way. And so I've adopted that kind of approach actually to our change management. Again, it's messy because people ask you questions, where are we going to be when we're done? And you don't always know, right? <laughs> but, but you say, here's what we're doing now. And if this proves fruitful and this proves valuable, then we're going to take the next step. If not, we'll decommit resources and we'll move to something else. But we know what the strategic objective is, but we don't necessarily know the path uh, to get to it. So for me, I want to find quick wins. If we start something new, what can we come back in 30 days and say, look what we did? I also keep lists. We have a weekly uh, staff and devotion meeting here at the ministry. And about once a quarter, I will go up and say, guys, listen to what we've done in the last three months. And I'll read the list, small things, large things, anything like that. But that's an exciter. And so that's really the third thought. The first thought is know your team and be able to deal honestly and authentically with them. The second is identify and find quick wins. And the third is celebrate those wins. Don't just take it for granted that everybody knows that we won or what's going on or anything like that. And that's why once a quarter I'll go in and I'm telling you, they are fabulous list for the <laughs> ministry and everybody walks away high-fiving and saying, man, what a, what, a, what a great place. And you can sense the morale in the building and in the team uh, when you have kind of a cadence of celebrating, celebrating wins like that. Yeah, that's a really smart move. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So follow up to something you said in that last segment, when you're talking about, uh, sort of the agile process and approach. I, I suspect that was something new to the ministry that that you brought in that you know wasn't just the way they operated. Did it take arm twisting to get the C-suite of the organization to say, yeah, let's just change the way we think about this and do it completely different than we've ever done it before? Or were you were you in a, a place where you could make that kind of change commitment with, without any kind of you know nudging to the to the C-suite? Yeah, that's a great that's a great that's a great question. 
um, and really God's blessing and God fa God's favor on me and the ministries that already had relationships with a lot of the team, back, rooting back to the days that I'd worked. They have also known about some of the uh, some of the wins I had had even outside of the organization. So the answer to your question is yes to both. It did take some uh, cajoling and some training and so lots of deep conversations, you know, here's why we're going to do this and we can do this. And at some point it took, you know, trust me, uh, when we get to the other end, you know, let's come back and talk about this after, you know, and things like that. And yet at the same time, I think there was a level of credibility uniquely that God had given me for the ministry to come in and to be able to cash in some credibility chips uh, with the team internally. And quite frankly, uh, Andrew, with our board of directors, they've been around that. That's one of the finest groups of, of men. We, I, we were at a board meeting about two weeks ago and standing back and listening to them talk about the economy, talk about the ministry, talk about God, talk about finances, uh, talk about, I mean, there, I don't think there's a fortune 500 company in the world that have the same benefit that we have out of our board, uh, here at, um, at Love Worth Finding. They are, uh, they are awesome. But I think because I had previous relationships with them, they, I, I was extended a level of trust and credibility that might not have been there for a leader that would have come in that didn't have that. And I'll actually go back to what Adrian Rogers, uh, I, I sat in lots of, of conference room meetings where new preachers, new students, seminary students, people would come in and just soak in, you know, the years of wisdom and experience that he had on pastoring, the practical side of pastoring, not the theological side, right? And I, if I heard him say it once, I heard him say it a thousand times. He said, guys, when you go into a new organization, or he would say, when you go into a new pastor at a new church, don't change a thing for one year. Hmm. Preach God's word, win the hearts of the people, and then you'll find that most of them will follow you anywhere as you start making changes, but they need to know that you love them and that you care for them first before you can go in and be a dictatorial, you know, little Lord ha ha uh, coming in and saying, I'm the pastor and I'm the one that can do that. And so when I've gone into organizations besides Love Worth Finding, like I said, I had special grace when I came to Love Worth Finding. But when I went into organization, other organizations besides Love Worth Finding, I took that advice. He, he, had gave it, he gave it to pastors, but I would always make sure that I would cement the key relationships first before starting to exert the authority or the power or the influence that I had to start making some radical changes. That's good stuff. So let's talk a little bit about current day reality. So we're recording this on uh, May 14th. We're still in the midst of this, you know, COVID-19 thing. And it makes me think or has me questioning, you know, in, in turbulent times, what's the guidance you'd give to other leaders about, you know, how they might shift their leadership or where they might shift their focus to be most effective during a time like this? You know, generally, and this is going to be consistent with everything I've said so far, you really have to move in close to your team. And you really have to connect with your customers. Sometimes we see customers as cash registers or financial transactions or even ministry transactions that we have. And we disassociate ourselves from them as people. But they're suffering the same fears, the same struggles that you would have in your team and the same struggles, quite frankly, some of us would have depending on the impact of something like the pandemic, like COVID-19, or even go back, you know, to, to Katrina, or even go back to 9-11. I mean, some of the major, uh, major events. And at the end of the day, people are people. And people uh, are never far away from fear. 
And so we need, no matter what the ministry, no matter what the business, people are never far away from fear. And so we need to understand that. And I believe that as leaders, we have a responsibility not to exploit that fear, but to try to meet them at the point of fear, whatever that means for your business or whatever that means for your organization. But you really need to see your customers, your constituents, your supporters, your donors, they are real people. And I think we as leaders need to take our organizations and become more real and more transparent to them because at the end of the day, they're looking for people they can trust. Uh, they're not necessarily looking for things to buy, although some are, but they're really looking for people that they can trust. And I think you've got to focus on building the trust factor between you and your constituents during times of, of stress. Thank you. That's, that's really good. Two more questions before I let you go today. But the first is really around your, your own leadership experience. I'm curious to know what's the biggest risk you've ever taken as a leader and more than how it ended up. I want to know what you learned about yourself personally. The biggest risk I ever took as a leader was deciding on the basis of principle that I could no longer work for an organization that I had been employed by for about 12 years. Wow. Uh, I was in a, kind of a half step up from a middle management uh, position in that organization. I saw some of the cultural changes, some of the value changes, quite frankly, some of the ways uh, that that organization was ex executing business in the marketplace. And this was, this was one of my for-profit experiences. And I agonized for about six months over it thinking, yeah, I, I was making good money, good salary, good benefits. It was probably the highest time in my life that I was able to do things for my family that I had never been able to do before and quite frankly, ever been able to do since. But I spent a lot of time just talking to God about it. Uh, I would, my, the stress in me would wake me up about 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Rather than getting up and going to work, I would lay in bed or I'd go find a quiet place in the house and I literally would just pay, take an hour and a half or two hours reading God's word, praying, and just having a conversation with God. And the hardest thing when I have a conversation with God is that I usually like to be the one talking. And the hardest thing for me was just to be quiet and just back up and let God start putting thoughts and memory and, and things and clarity, quite frankly, into our mind. And, you know, the Bible tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And power and love and a sound mind speak to three things. Power speaks to your capability to do something once you're convinced that it's the right thing to do. Love speaks to the compassion. You don't want to do anything out of anger because I was angry and I was frustrated. But I needed to get to a place where my decisions were rooted in a love for my family, a love for my, myself, a love for um, our friends, and a love for the, the, the environment that I was living in. And then ultimately a sound mind speaks to clarity. And I think once you are able to sit and get alone, God, the Holy Spirit, starts bringing that clarity into your mind. It took me about six months to work through that, but I can still, I don't remember the date on the calendar, but I remember the moment when I thought, I'm out of here. And, I'm, and I had nowhere to go, but I walked in the next day to the president of the organization and said, I think my time uh, has come to leave and we need to talk about how to exit because I don't want to you know, I, I don't want to rake, you know, a lot of people or anything like that with me because I had several people that were under my, under my employee. And we sat down and worked through a, uh, an exit plan, but within two weeks I was out of there and had no place to go. And that's probably the biggest risk that I take. But I want to tell you, I don't remember many times in my life where I experienced the liberty 
And when I should have experienced fear, I experienced a high level of confidence that God was going to have something something next for me. And over a period of a couple of years, I went through a couple of jobs and a couple of businesses that I bought and sold. But over the period of the next two to three years, I landed right here at Butworth Finding. And I never would have seen it on the horizon ever if I had stayed back uh, back where I was. And so that's that's probably the biggest risk and the biggest journey that I would come back and talk about. And I don't remember the second part of your question. I'm sorry. It was, no, it's okay. That's a good story. It was, uh, what did you learn about yourself in the process? I think what I learned about myself really is the truth that's in the verse that I just quoted, the Bible, the scripture verse I quoted. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Anytime I feel like that I'm acting and behaving out of fear, that's an automatic trigger and an automatic check for me. It wouldn't have been before, but in the last five to seven years, that's become an automatic mental check to me. Wait, you're not, you're not lined up right. And then, but what God has given us instead, once we give our fears to him, God has given us the capability to make right decisions, the clarity to make right decisions, and the compassion uh, to be able to use those decisions in order to continue uh, to impact the lives of others for good. And so what I learned for myself is I don't have to live out of fear or panic. And it quite frankly gives me a real sense of security even during times like this, right? Now, I, I can tend to be a warrior. I mean, you know, we've got employees here. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I, I will confess to you that when this thing first started going down and, and I'm saying, man, how do I keep them employed? Am I going to have to lay any of them off? I don't want to do that. What can I do to help them? What's the best advice I can give to them? But that was the kind of the first two weeks and that was the fear part. And then my three 30 in the morning prayer session started again and God said, don't be fearful, just be watchful, but you have the power and you have the right heart now, the compassion for your employees. And quite frankly, I will, I will give you the clarity that you need to walk every day. So just walk a day at a time with me. And that's what we've been doing. And we've seen God's favor and blessing on our ministry in ways that it's been a long time. Awesome. All right. Final question for you, man. What motivates you as a leader? Developing people. Hmm. I mean, in the, in the Christian world, we would call it discipleship. Sure. But in the professional world, we would call it developing people. I like to see people grow. And I think one of the reasons I get so jazzed by that is because I remember the days where I was competitive with everybody else that I was working with because I had to win. I had to do it. I had to get the credit. And when I look back today and say, no, I really want you to win. I don't want any of the credit for this. I want you to get better. That's just a reminder to me every time what God's done in my own life over the last 40 years. And it just uber excites me. That's really cool. Man, this has been a fascinating conversation for me and, and really enjoyed talking to you. If, if anybody who's listening to this wants to get in touch, wants to connect with you, what's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, my email here at Loveworth Finding Ministries is B Lewis, like Bobby, B-L-E-W-I-S at L-W-F dot O-R-G. And just just write me directly. Awesome. Hey man, thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing with us. Andrew, thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.